Hey, we're podcasting here. It's me, Will Menneker, back with another episode of Chapo. Joining me, as always, is Felix Peterman. Hello, everyone. Matt Chrisman. Hey, everybody. Uh, shout out to all the haters who are protesting in front of my pizza restaurant. Let me just tell y'all, you getting mad, I'm getting loose. <laughs> <laughs> and last but not least, Amber uh, Lee Frost. Howdy. Um... So this week's episode, we're doing a we're doing a book review. I wanted to talk about this book for a long time because it seems to me that it appeared on our national consciousness at the exact right moment to be adopted by the most obnoxious twits on both left and right as some sort of soothsaying prescription for the uh, the the jangled and harried times that we live in. And of course, I'm referring to the book "Hillbilly Elegy" by J.D. Vance. Now, unlike other previous book review episodes where I've skimmed quite thoroughly all of the books that we've talked about on this show, I actually have not read this book. So joining us is someone who has. Please welcome Associate Editor at Commonweal Magazine, Matthew Sitman. Matthew, welcome. Thank you. Happy to be here. Um, Matthew, you're working on a, a book review of Hillbilly Elegy right now, correct? Right, right. I am. So yeah, you're, you're uh, very familiar with this book. I am, and I've followed the J.D. Vance phenomenon since it started. Really. He, is, he is a phenomenon. He sort he of is. came I out mean, of nowhere. He, I just saw he did a TED Talk. Always. Uh, that's the mark of quality, it's, always. It's sort of, yeah, it's a, a symbol of something. Like, yeah, Matthew, I, w- I wanted to talk to you about this book, and I also wanted to talk to you about your background in life, because you know, the, I, you, I first, I guess, sort of took notice of you be- when you wrote this article for Descent Magazine that talked mm-hmm. about, you know, you growing, like, the the town and community that you grew up in it called uh leaving you wrote about leaving conservatism behind and like your life story i guess it parallels in some way with jd vance's a little bit yeah i my the circumstances of my youth were not entirely different than jd vance's uh i definitely wasn't quite the appalachia hillbilly like true poverty but definitely working class blue collar Central Pennsylvania, not far from Pittsburgh, where you guys were recently. Uh, but I came out of it with a very different political spec- perspective than him. Well, let, let's start. Let's, I, I want to I talk about the article you did for Dissent and how, right. like, where your sort of prescriptions and paths differ from J.D. Vance. But I think the thing that needs to be uh, underscored about J.D. Vance is just how readily and quickly this guy has been adopted as like the Tribune or the soothsayer, the, the white working class whisperer, if you will, of both like the liberal and conservative media in this country. Right, yeah. No, I think one, this is before the book came out, but I remember David Brooks in April during the primaries wrote this sort of mea culpa for the New York Times in his column where he said, you know, I just didn't know who these people were. I was stuck in my bourgeois strata as he put it, and he just didn't know any of these people voting for Trump. So that was the mindset, I think, of a lot of pundits, a lot of kind of mainstream writers uh, and journalists who they just didn't know where these people were coming from or what their experiences had been. And then into that gap stepped J.D. Vance and this book. And instead of actually having to, you know, experience some of the things these people experience, visit where they live, uh, they could sort of read this book and feel... Like they got it and were sort of tolerant. And, and here was someone with a Yale law degree who was speaking their language and flattering a lot of their assumptions. You know, frankly. David Brooks was online at the Applebee's salad bar, but he wasn't right. looking at his fellow patron, the fellow patrons at the Applebee's <laughs> establishment. And as such of that, 
he missed he missed the writing on the wall about Trump yeah. getting the Republican nomination and eventually the president. So I'm sorry, Applebee's does not have a fucking salad that's bar. That's the joke. <laughs> David, Bro- David Brooks wrote a whole book where he talks about going to the Applebee's salad bar. Wait, in, really? In his Bobo's in Paradise book, there's a whole section about Applebee's where he talks about using the salad bar there. Oh God, I have to listen to the episodes of this show that I'm not on. <laughs> um, yeah, you, you you thought this was like my pronunciation of. Zine, but no, yeah. this is actually. Well, I mean, to be fair, you have a lot of strange pronunciation. That is true. Uh, I don't mean to own Will again, but uh, the Applebee salad bar reference was actually from an interview he gave talking <laughs> about how Barack Obama was not connected to American folkways because he would, quote, not be comfortable at an Applebee's salad bar, which is rendered even more hilarious because he was in that very quote showing that he had no connection to <laughs> yeah. the supposed grassroots of America. Let me be clear. I love all 57 of the condiment stations at the <laughs> Applebee's salad bar. <laughs> anyway, so people like David Brooks and readers of the New York Times were shocked that uh, large swaths of America, of white America, were overthrowing uh, predictable patterns of behavior to right. go for a guy, na- a guy like Trump, who in every on every outward appearance by their lights was a vulgarian, a fraud, a fool, um, but yet was speaking to these people in such a way that he could basically become president of the United States. In comes J.D. Vance, and this book is published at exactly the right time to explain to these people the culture of this forgotten white working class. So could you talk a little bit about what what is J.D. Vance's story, and how does he view this culture that he is sort of um, transcribing for an elite audience? Right. Well, um, the basics of, first of all, it's a memoir. Uh, so it's kind of told through the first person and his set of experiences. And it gives a little bit of background about that part of Kentucky and Ohio, the two states where he, he grew up, uh, and a little bit of his family background, like his grandparents and great-grandparents, great, great the stock, so to speak, he came from. Uh, and then it just walks you through some of what he experienced growing up, like uh, you know his mother's problems with drugs, uh, the way he was raised by a kind of collection of grandparents, aunts, uncles, a father who came in back into the picture later, uh, and then eventually makes it to the military and Ohio State University and then Yale Law School. And so that's a, a lot of his childhood and adolescence in Kentucky and Ohio, and then you know him sort of making it and breaking through. And from that perspective, looking back from uh, you know the vantage point of being in Silicon Valley, going to Yale Law School, uh, you know he, he kind of... I think in the book views himself as someone who can bridge that gap. He exists in both worlds and he tells the story very much from that angle. Well, and liberals love the story of the one who got out right? and don't right. perhaps consider the possibility that the reason the, that person may have, you know, quote unquote, gotten out uh, is because they are perhaps not the best representative of the community from which they have emerged. <laughs> well, like there's a couple things going on here because like, you know, first of all, like he, he's a, he's a pretty good writer, right? Right. I have to say, um, reading the the bulk of the memoir, it, it didn't really set off my bullshit detector. Like he tells stories that are pretty harrowing at points. That he, he doesn't play them up. He doesn't make more of them than he should. He doesn't write about them in a way that's obviously trying to 
you know, manipulate you emotionally in some way. So as a, just a literary document, it's, it's not bad. In fact, that's part of its success is he does this very well. But as you were getting at, it's the, the, the analysis he provides. And because it's a memoir, he doesn't really, it's not a policy book, but he does give a prescription of sorts for what ails these people. It has the quality of being like, you know, not like you know, well-written, authentic, and this kind of first-person narrative, right? right. That, that he mm-hmm. is bringing it to you. So it has, it, it has, it checks off all these authenticity boxes that exactly. people really crave mm-hmm. in trying to understand things like poverty in America, right. right? And there are a few anecdotes like his grandmother, like trying to set fire to, I think, uh, her husband, his grandfather. Uh, there's a family story of someone being like marred by a chainsaw. You know, he drops in a few things like that to, you know, give you the sense that this really is authentic. But yeah, it's it definitely checks those boxes. And like coming out of that, like you, you you alluded to it as well, but like him as a personal story also checks off all these boxes of sort of liberal and conservative meritocracy, right? right it's not exactly. that he just he comes from a a poor background with a like a drug addicted mother and you know coming out of rural poverty and this kind mm-hmm. of the, this this forgotten class of people that are now asserting themselves electorally. Right. It's that, you know, he it's the pull themselves up by the bootstraps and specifically by joining the Marines and serving in Iraq, mm-hmm. then going to Ohio State, then Yale Law, and then becoming a venture capitalist in San Francisco working for right. and this is the real name of the company, Mithril Capital Management, <laughs> an investment firm helmed by Peter Thiel. Right, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> Mithria, I want to point out, it's uh, one of Peter Thiel's, is a few things like this, where it's a fund named after some Lord of the Rings bullshit, and it also lost most of its value. There's something so just depressing about the fact that we're ruled by these fucking nerds. <laughs> I mean, at least like the old school robber barons were just these steely-eyed, syphilitic psychopaths. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, These fucking I genuinely miss it. The nerd dorks with their goddamn Lord of the Rings bullshit ruling over us with iron fists. JP Morgan was, was, JP Morgan was like 700 pounds overweight. He ate oysters for every meal. <laughs> Instead of coffee, he would drink a mix of morphine and bourbon. He refused <laughs> to walk up any stairs, walk more than 2 blocks. He would take cabs everywhere he was such a fucking drunk that he had a growth on the edge of his nose that looked like cauliflower fuck <laughs> like fucked strippers all the time he was awesome he did and- that thing that like american uh uh like millionaires do where they're like i want shit to look fancy and european so he would have like shit reproduced of like you know naked cherubs flying but he's like but also America. So we would like put like an American flag in it. It's like when Kanye was like, I want Renaissance babies, but I want them black. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like that, that crazy, like weird nouveau riche yeah. uh, thing that like they do where they're just like, okay, I want the authenticity of old world money, but also I want to adjust it to make it appropriate uh, for my context. He, he was an auteur. And he would he would have these dinners with all the strippers he was fucking. This is true. And he would have oysters and they would put pearls in them, like just to give to people. Just Party spend favors. like millions of dollars on these dinners with just these like women one third of his age and but one tenth of his just body like, weight. Oh, here's like a thousand year old Ethiopian Bible and like, you know, yeah. some fucking Armenian book made out of like, you know, turquoise and here's like old antiquity and like he had at least a cool collection of shit. 
Peter Thiel probably has so many Lord of the Ring reproduction yeah. swords. Peter Thiel, <laughs> Peter Thiel's, Peter Thiel, like, yeah, compared to him, all he does is wear, like, dry fit quarter zip pullover shirts and, like, his big, like, his, like, his equivalent to J.P. Morgan having those pearl parties is, like, uh, I'm bringing my favorite Wikipedia moderators into a room and we're all going to debate circumcision. <laughs> That's a Peter Thiel party. Okay, we're getting off track. Yeah, to be yeah. fair, I've heard of uh, some other Peter Thiel parties that are more debauched than the Wikipedia moderator one. But back, back to J.D. Vance, okay? So the, the subtitle of this book is it's Hillbilly Elegy, but the subtitle is A Memoir of Family and Culture in Crisis. And it's that mm-hmm. second part. It's the culture yeah. in crisis that, that forms, I think, a lot of the crux of this book, or at least the response to it. How does J.D. Vance talk about hillbilly culture? What does he make of it? Well, he, he talks about it in a few different ways. At the start of the book, he tells an anecdote of uh, he had a summer job or a job shortly after high school or college in some, some blue-collar job, uh, and they had trouble staffing it, actually keeping people in these jobs because you know, someone would show up and he had a wife and a kid but didn't want to work and would quit after two days or something like that. Um, so he, he drops in a lot of those anecdotes that there's a work ethic problem in the white working class culture. Um, the kind of paranoia and suspicion that mark this culture, he underscores that. And basically, like you said, the fact that that second word in the subculture, uh, in the subtitle culture, that's really the core of his critique of why things are the way they are and why these people are suffering what they're suffering. People are taking off work I, so that they can go under the tree by the fishing hole and tie a line <laughs> to their toe while they fall asleep. Right. Honestly, like uh, my grandparents are Appalachian and uh, they're like the, the super work until you bleed kind. Uh, mm-hmm. But there um, definitely is a fuck this job, I'll, I'll, I'll quit it. Um, Johnny Paycheck. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Right? Yeah. There, yeah, there's take this job and sh- sh- shove it. And also, there's just like <laughs> even older than that, like bluegrass. Like I ain't gonna work on the railroad. Ain't mm-hmm. gonna work on the farm. Lay around the shack till the mail yeah. Trump train comes back. Roll in my sweet baby's arms. Like no, I would rather not work. I would rather fuck. And frankly, <laughs> that is the best thing about hillbillies That's is because <laughs> there are horrible, shitty work. <laughs> it's incredibly like a lot of the job opportunities there have been historically very dangerous. And uh, also, like in the <clears throat> uh, in the con- in the economy of a lot of these re- regions, like ramping up until the seventies, you could literally work for a few months and then just say "fuck off." Well, this is a this is a trajectory that he does trace in the book, or at least in, in the reviews that I, I, I keep read in of mind it. as a Marxist and materialist, none of this means anything, and I'm not adhering to any kind of cultural. We're going to get anyway, to that. But. We're going right. to we're going to get to the what, what's wrong with uh, the cultural explanation yeah. for mm-hmm. poverty, which is everything. But right. um, like he does trace in this book an economic arc of right. u- upward mobility in these communities up until about the 70s and then a right. sharp downturn into what is now he quotes that more people in like in the town he grew up in in Ohio more people die of drug overdoses than natural causes now that was like last year right right so that's an important part of the story too is basically there was uh you know a migration of sorts out of Appalachia proper like real hillbilly folks to places like Middletown Ohio where his grandparents moved for a, a well-paying factory job in, say, the 1950s, that general time period. I learned and, they are called butternuts. <laughs> right. This is 
what historians called them. I only learned this from uh, a the people historian. who moved out of the hollers to work yeah. at a factory were called yeah. butternuts. Yeah, I right, exactly. don't know why. They, it was the people who moved out of the holler to do factory work. Yeah, uh, roughly mid-century, and and it was really his mother's generation, say, you know, as you said, the 1970s, where the decay seems to start in. Um, but he doesn't trace, he doesn't connect any of these dots. Like, why was there a well-paying factory job in the 1950s? Or what happened in the 1970s that might have, you know, put in place a different set of incentives or just different work environment, different work circumstances, different economic circumstances? He doesn't really, he's, he's telling a generational story, but he doesn't really connect it to the broader changes in the economy or political system uh, at all. He, he talks a lot about, like, you know, the world he grew up in was one of, you know, extreme family instability, mm-hmm. alcoholism, random violence, and right. just people that are quick to anger, and, you know, not a lot of stability in his life. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, there's a lot about hillbilly culture that he praises and sort of valorizes in a way. Yeah, I mean, the general... Uh, sense of loyalty or kind of close-knit families, even though that's in tension with, you know, sort of family breakdown, but those kind of more tribal loyalties, you might say, are are virtues he he does respect. Well, and also he built his brand off them, so he can't throw them completely off under the bus. (laughs) Very much so. Now, in preparing for this, I I was reading, uh, I wanted to, like, get a sample of how this book was received, and it was overwhelmingly positively reviewed, Mm -hmm. and I went to the the New Yorker review of this book by uh, Joshua Rothman that I think was, you know, the New Yorker is kind of like the standard of like, you know, what is like the elite media consensus on something. Like this is like the height of, you know... It's representative. Of the the sort of cosmopolitan culture that supposedly looks down and condescends to the culture that that Mm -hmm. J.D. Vance came out of. And in the review, I found a a lot of interesting things about the the reception to this book. And um, quoting from it now, he says... um, the, the reviewer says here, uh, there is a, no, actually, sorry, this is, this is J.D. Vance uh, being quoted here. There is a lack of agency here, a feeling that you have little control over your life and a willingness to blame everyone but yourself. This is distinct from the larger economic landscape of modern America. And my question is, is, that, is it? I don't think so. Um, well, and there's a couple different reasons why. One is he doesn't really get into the prehistory of this culture at all in terms of the way it might have come out of like company towns, mining towns that were um, just dependency breeding, um, culture destroying, soul crushing set of circumstances. And then out of that, his grandparents move to a new place, right? For some reason, that mobility seems, that kind of uncertainty that comes with with mobility, they, they moved to a new place. And you can see, actually, that that was a, a real linchpin to the story. He doesn't really underscore it, but um, his, his grandparents moved away from their family and their tribe and kind of didn't know what to do. Like, you know, they had uh, his mother, and let's say she's a difficult child. You know, before there would have been this coterie of aunts, uncles, family members, all kind of helping raise these children together, but now they're you know, in some house by themselves with neighbors they don't really know. And it was that move out of the holler. Uh, they kind of got the worst of both worlds, like the anonymity and uncertainty of a new place. But they brought with them some of the habits and traits that come from, you know, uh, decades of a certain kind of economic system in Appalachia centered around coal mining. Yeah, well, and and agriculture, too. I mean, you're talking yeah. about people that, like, like my papa had... 
12 brothers and sisters mm-hmm. and my mom had nine and those were just the ones that lived and like it, because they just never thought that they would move they just never thought that they would do anything other than farm mm-hmm. uh and you know they talk about like paranoia like Appalachian people have pretty good reasons to be paranoid. I mean, like, yeah. like <clears throat> just the Tennessee Valley Authority alone gave a lot of people a very short shrift. Um, you know, I obviously I supported a lot of people would still not have electricity if they did. But, you know, mm-hmm. people were not properly reimbursed. There was all kinds yeah. of weird fucked up, um, you know, liberal um, social reformers who sort of tried to covertly introduce sterilization programs. I mean, there's very good reasons for Appalachians to be paranoid. Yeah. And it would, you know, treat it as sort of like a colony within America. Yeah, because also, like, their fear of this, like, you know, hyper-fecund horde of people living in the hills. Like, it's very, you know, it. it yeah. they very much occupy the, the fantasy horror imaginations of of cosmopolitan urban people. And when it gets to that, when it gets to when Vance begins to discuss going to Yale and sort of seeing the other side of this, Mm -hmm. this culture, that's where he gets into this idea of this is where he becomes like the, the white working class whisperer to people like, for instance, Rod Dreher, who was Mm -hmm. huge in popularizing this book. This idea that it's really, it's the snobbery of the other people and their condescension that is feeding into the dysfunction of this the the culture that he comes from right. and i want to there's one thing from this review here that i want to point out he says white poverty vance this is rothman the reviewer white poverty vance comes to feel as a source of special shame no one at yale sees dignity in it instead they define themselves in opposition to people like him one professor says that in his opinion yale law shouldn't bother accepting students from non-ivy league schools since it's not his he's not in the business of quote remedial education and i think that this is like obviously i mean like that's an asshole thing to say i'm shocked to find out there's elitist jerks I, yeah, at the Ivy League. But what I think he's doing here is I think there's sort of a sleight of hand in which Yale, Yale Law School and the Ivy League is his shorthand for cosmopolitan values and liberalism writ large, right? right? Not right. just a very distinct subset of a highly elite culture that is right. maybe a subset of just East Coast, not you know Southern or Midwestern hillbilly culture. Right, he extrapolates a lot from that. Uh, and some of those stories he tells about being at Yale Law are actually kind of interesting. Like, and I identified with some of them. So when he was, uh, you're looking for his first summer law gig, uh, you go through this onerous interview process where, you know, uh, you end up having dinner after multiple rounds of interviews. You end up having dinner at a fancy restaurant with these partners at the firm that might hire you. And he talks about not knowing which fork to use or how to order wine. You know, he, there's a great story where the waiter comes over, what kind of wine do you want? And he knew red versus white, but he said, I'll take red and, or whatever it was. And the waiter's like, well, what kind of red, you know? And as someone who grew up in circumstances, not totally different than his, who lived in DC, I, I went to grad school at Georgetown and found myself in very similar circumstances, kind of in a very short period of time, just you know, moving in very different circles. Uh, that resonated. Uh, but, you know, there are other times where he talks about professors who were like critical of the war in Iraq. And as a veteran, he was just, you know, he views that as condescension, right? As like an anti-military attitude when really, you know, you look back, there's a lot of good reason to 
be horrified by what happened in Iraq, including the behavior of some of our military there. And, you know, suspicion about our adventures in the Middle East is not ipso facto bigotry or condescension or anything like that. I think this gets to like this sort of catch 22 that uh, that's at the heart of this book about how he views hillbilly culture that he comes from and this kind of elite culture that looks down on them. And I want to read this is again from the New Yorker review. This is Rothman writing here. He says, this is this is Vance talking about Obama's comments during the 2008 election, the famous line where he said, you know, if you look at these towns, there's no jobs, there's no opportunity, and they cling to their guns and religion as a source of identity, which Obama got slammed for to this day. Right. People still... Uh, right, it's a right-wing trope. Yeah, now. it's a right-wing yeah. trope. Uh, you know, Rothman says in the article, well, what, you know, what, Jay, what, he, what he's saying in this book is really not that much different than what Obama was saying in that. But it, Vance, okay, so he says, Vance conceded that Obama's comments had been well-intentioned and that he had named legitimate problems. Nonetheless, he said, Obama's comments lacked sympathy. Reading Hillbilly Elegy, you see what Vance means. Vance is after a certain kind of sympathy, sympathy among equals that doesn't demean or condescend. Such sympathy can't be deterministic and categorical. In fact, it must be a little judgmental. It must be the people to whom it's extended as dignified individuals who retain their moral obligations. Okay, like this is the contradiction to me. Vance is a conservative, right? Right. He's still a right wing. He's still a Republican guy. So... He, he's looking at these, the, the causes and, uh, of poverty, mm-hmm. right? But he wants people to talk about it in a very singular way. And I think what he wants is sympathy on his terms, exactly. right? Where you have yeah. to respect the culture they're from, but what he doesn't want is any political engagement with that culture outside of basically Republican economics. Right, exactly. So he, he does, you use the term sleight of hand. That's exactly right. So he wants us to not condescend to this culture, uh, but he refuses to talk about it in any way other than what lines up almost perfectly with right-wing talking points. Another way of putting it is that Vance wants to be this brave truth-teller, right? He tells these people they need to get their life together, they need to shape up, or you know they're going to continue to be mired I'm in these terrible I'm just so glad rednecks have our own Bill Cosby right. now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, he's he's like... Uh, we pull, do need to pull up our pants. Yeah, but pull up that Carhartt jacket. It, yeah. <laughs> instead of pull up your pants, it's uh, pull up your ass flaps on your prospector underwear. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it is, it is an amazing symmetry, isn't it, between the liberal attitude, which says we must give sympathy to poor, deserving people, and by deserving, they mean members of a oppressed racial minority and fuck off to poor white people because they're racist. And this is basically, no, you have to have sympathy for poor white people too. But in both cases, all it means is exhibiting a public sense of, of, you know, Oh, I feel your pain and, and not ever transmitting that into any kind of policy that might alleviate it. Right. Well, there's a, there's a uh, a piece by uh, Adolf Reed called uh, "What Are the Drums Saying, Booker: The Curious Role of a Black Public Intellectual," uh, where he talks about this kind of direct correlation. And these liberals like love to elect certain representatives of you know marginalized groups, and um, you know they view them as translators. And the metaphor he uses is uh, this this show. Uh, Ramar of the Jungle, where um, there's some, 
there's some white guy who has who has a native uh uh whatever sidekick interpreter interpreter yeah, yeah. and uh you know the native people would be like playing drums to communicate and he would say what are the drums saying booker <laughs> and uh yeah this guy he's just a hillbilly booker He's uh, been elected to to be a translator because he tells them exactly what and the whole thing like that's it it's this weird kind of like single source representation mm-hmm. uh they're only going to let they're not going to let like dissident views in like they found their one hillbilly and that's who yeah. who they're going to use to uh you know form their their ideas about the politics of mm-hmm. of rural white working class people yeah. uh i can I read a passage yeah, from the book? Do. Because it gets at something important. And when I read this, this is when uh, the gig was really up for me. I thought he showed his cards most strongly here. So uh, as we mentioned, he's sort of this brave truth teller, supposedly about the white underclass and working class white culture. But I, there's a, toward the end of the book, there's this amazing passage where he goes through uh, you know, the percentage of people who believe Obama is a Muslim, or that he was foreign-born, not an American citizen, those kinds of statistics. And then, uh, I'm quoting now, reading from the book. Many of my new friends blame racism for this perception of the president, but the president feels like an alien to many Middletonians for reasons that have nothing to do with his skin color. Recall, <laughs> no, listen, listen, this is so unbelievable. Recall that not a single one of my high school classmates attended an Ivy League school. Barack Obama attended two of them and excelled at both. He is brilliant, wealthy, and speaks like a constitutional law professor, which of course he is. Nothing about him bears any resemblance to the people I admired growing up. His accent, clean, perfect, neutral, is foreign. His credentials are so impressive that they're frightening. He made his life in Chicago, a dense metropolis, and he conducts himself with a confidence that comes from knowing that the modern American meritocracy was built for him. Of course, Obama overcame adversity in his own right, adversity familiar to many of us, but that was long before any of us knew him. So if you boil that down, he basically says these people weren't bothered by Obama because of his skin color, but because of his accent, which is just <laughs> unbelievable. Maybe he's right. Because unbelievable. You, the background that he described, I mean, look at George W. Bush has an right. Ivy League silver spoon back. Right. His dad mm-hmm. was vice president and head of the mm-hmm. fucking CIA. He grew right. up in Maine, mm-hmm. but his accent sounded like an asshole. So. Right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> So, so suddenly the, the sort of criticism of white culture, and if you were going to be critical of white working class culture, racism would be, you know, and that, that would be part of the things you would want to criticize. Well, I here's think. the thing, like, and then like, you know, he, he talks in detail about this dysfunctional culture, right? I mean, like even about his own relatives. I think mm-hmm. at one point in one quote I read from the book, he describes like, you know, how teachers didn't understand like, you know, what do you do with kids when they're being raised by wolves? <laughs> Like he refers to them as like actual wolves and talks about the violence and drug addiction. And he Mm -hmm. even quotes the, uh, their quote, bizarre sexism and incuriosity as well. I love the idea that like sexism is somehow bizarre as if like it's not just the way (laughs) 99.999% of the world is. Like it's not the consequence of critical thinking and logic. (laughs) (laughs) So, right. So like this is his description of this culture. So like what, what does he want? people like so let's say someone like me to respect in that like what is he what is it where is the sympathy he wants to come from what is the respect he wants to come from and i think from what i can glean from this the answer boils down to the their patriotism 
their mm-hmm. sort of religiosity and all of the things that right wing social conservatives extol right. in nor- in white people. Basically, basically right. you're supposed to like all of the stuff that makes them vote Republicans when they do exactly. vote, yeah. and hate all of the stuff that conforms with the stereotype of black urban culture. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, right. yeah, like I think the, Matt, that, that, like, that, that's the bad stuff. And by the way, it's kind of amazing to me that. The that the the cultures the subcultures in America that have to be pathologized and described in terms of their just inveterate self defeating pathology are also the ones that are the most hard hit by economic dislocation. That seems like a weird coincidence that communities that have the most distressed relationship with the changing economy are the ones that have the most pathologizable uh, cultures. That's a weird quinky dink. Uh, now, now, this gets into the whole economics versus culture right. debate. Yeah. And, and to get there, I want to go back to this New Yorker article again because I think it's very instructive about the way this book has been received by the sort of broader elite media political culture. Rothman writes here, it is through these backdoors of memory and family history that Hillbilly Elegy arrives at its broadest subject, our hopelessly politicized approach to thinking about poverty. (laughs) This theory is useful to politicians because political ideologies function by identifying some people as powerless and others as powerful. The truth, though, is that in the culture versus economics dyad is largely a fantasy. We are neither prisoners of our economic circumstances nor lords of our culture able to reshape them at will. Again, liberals and conservatives both believe what Milo believes, which is that politics is downstream from culture. He says, it would be more accurate to say that cultural and economic forces act with entwined and equal power and through all of us, and that we have an ability, limited but real, to harness or resist them. I was going to say, I love this style of essay writing where it's just like you get to the conclusion, then you're like, well... Actually, the issue is pretty complicated, and the answer is a little bit of both. Yeah, he goes on. He says, "Only oh. one guy can do it and make it good, make it good, <laughs> and he's the father." Works for Cranes Detroit. Y'all know who I'm talking about. Love that boy. Give it up for a man. <laughs> hey, uh, just one more. He says, "And yet it would be wrong to see Vance's book as yet another entry in our endless argument about whether this or that group's poverty is caused by economics or cultural factors." Hillbilly Elegy sees the economics versus cultural divide as a dead metaphor, a form of manipulation rather than explanation more likely to conceal the truth than to reveal it. Uh, There's more truth there than the reviewer knows. uh, It's concealing a lot, but he's lying to himself that this book isn't absolutely an argument for the cultural forces that make poverty. Yeah, I mean, that's an anti-materialist argument, and and it's really the most traditional conservative thing. He talks about the breakdown of families. Yeah. You know, he talks about, like, gee, I wonder why families break down. Gee, I I wonder how, you know, if displacement and employment has anything to do with that. I wonder if there is any correlation between drug addiction and injuries during, uh, you know, hard physical labor and just human misery. And just hopelessness yeah. and just yeah. general. And also a, 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 a unwillingness to work when the only jobs on offer are fucking soul and body destroying nightmares. Yeah. Yeah. It's so amazing watching these people tut tut people's fucking work ethic <laughs> when they sit in an air conditioned <laughs> office and go, oh, you know, sometimes uh, it's both. 
Yeah, <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, like uh, MacBooks and act like, well, they don't have the work ethic that I do. By the way, when's lunch? I'm feeling <laughs> yeah, JD Vance's literal job is to like ride Segways next to Peter Thiel and be like, <laughs> uh, uh, let's give two billion dollars to another blog. <laughs> it's, and he's like shit talking everyone from his hometown, like they're lazy. They could never do my job. Where I would where love I have to see him go back to his hometown. Yeah. I would blanket pay. party. Well, well, here, well, here's the uh, here's the follow up. Uh, Matthew, can you fill us on? Uh, JD has sort of gone back to his hometown, and by his hometown, he means Columbus, Ohio, <laughs> right? Because that's where the airport is. Yeah, the, the uh, right? yeah, yeah. I mean, he, where the hell would you move to? Ohio, you know? He's actually uh, going to be a guest on Street Fights next live show on 420. Kind of like if you took Hillbilly Elegy and you, it is like a show where it's like, these are why all poor white people are poor because they run guns, but they lose all the money. They constantly <laughs> fuck it up. They, they spend uh, their money on big shiny yeah. bikes. They spent their entire income from a year taking their bikes to Ireland to find a baby. <laughs> Wait, uh, but Matthew, what are his yeah. prescriptions? Yeah, could though? you give us a follow-up like, on like, yeah, he's going yeah. to Columbus, Ohio, specifically to do like the Charles Murray thing and get back in touch <laughs> with the real right. America and provide them investment capital opportunities in the hollers or what? Uh, well, well, it's sort of a two-stage process. So first, he wrote a piece in the New York Times not that long ago called "Why I'm Moving Home." Uh, and after actually name-checking Charles Murray, <laughs> seriously, uh, he's and he does that in the book too. He, he said he read a couple books in preparation for this, one of which was Coming Apart, Charles Murray's book. Uh, he said he's moving home to start a small nonprofit to uh, confront the opioid epi- epi- epidemic. Um, but then a news report came out just just like within the last week that he's actually, uh, in addition to that. Uh, starting something with a venture capitalist in Ohio, bringing venture capital to the people of Ohio <laughs> to yeah. help them. Uh, oh, to all no, those no. Appalachians in that fucking college town, Columbus, Ohio. No, um, I mean, just, can I read from this? Yeah, go for Cause it. Because there's so many things that you, will just make you want to scream. Um, the Hillbilly Elegy author is joining Revolution LLC, the venture capital <laughs> outfit 
founded by Steve Case, the, the old AOL guy. The duo, who initially met on Twitter, uh, want to focus specifically on neglected areas of the country. And, and then it mentions his continuing affiliation with Peter Thiel. So he's, he's not just starting some nonprofit to help opioid addiction. He's actually going back to do the service of venture capital this uh, is with, uh, with the AOL guy. <laughs> uh, and I, and it, it's very vague. Like the, the article doesn't really describe what, will there be like apps for, plan. you know, will they be d- further disruption? Will there be apps? Will there be... He's going to have sympathy for people addicted to fentanyl, but the right yeah. kind of sympathy. Yeah. It's like Uber, but for sympathy. Yeah. Not, not too much, but not too little. He's going right. to bring back the AOL 500 hours of free internet CDs, but he's going to be like, look, you can either use these CDs to get online, go to monster.com, go into Peace Corps, go to Coding Camp, do anything, or you can use them to snort oxycodone. It's your choice. I'm hoping that he brings the microloan uh, model to the United States so that, like India, we can have hundreds of rural Americans committing suicide <laughs> jumping into wells because they can't pay back JD the money I, that they fucking I borrowed. have to know, though, does he ever comment on how Appalachia used to be like a Democratic stronghold? I, I honestly... Like, does he uh, make any reference to, like, the massive union participation well, that used to exist? He, he does kind of... Uh, I was flipping through pages on my way here again, and there is a point I, I saw where he said, yeah, like, the generation above me were these solid sort of blue dog Democrats. Um, and then he moves on to say he's more conservative than them. And uh, I mean, this so is I, totally anecdotal. I could be forgetting it. I could be forgetting it. But. This is totally anecdotal. But like as uh, someone of hillbilly extraction, uh, I am I am allowed to <laughs> say to anecdotes. I'm allowed to say anecdotes are actually yeah. uh, fact and data. <laughs> but like. My grandparents literally just stopped voting when there wasn't a coal ca- like when they moved to Indiana to literally work at paper factory uh uh because there wasn't any there wasn't a union candidate anymore like they literally just used to vote for who the union <laughs> like right, you yeah. know supported <laughs> and they don't they didn't have that anymore and it's just they're left disenfranchised without without uh, any kind of labor base. Well, Felix, this this goes to something you were, you brought up uh, before we started recording about this idea that like guys like JD Vance and like this whole cottage industry around you know him and this whole topic of like the white working class, what to do about them? Oh, like their backward social attitudes. Like, ooh, can we reach out to them? Just obscures the fact that like that these people, it's the same way that Yale is being, like Yale Law School is being used as like the totem of cosmopolitan, like liberal America, urban America. But also talk about provincial, talk about fucking hillbillies, talk about people who until like 80 years ago were still marrying their cousins. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Which we never did. That was always (laughs) upper class people. Who do you think has more overlapping chromosomes, a fucking Winthrop or somebody from a holler? Yeah. You may be surprised. Uh, Yeah, no, but there is this... We are not fucking our cousins. We, however, you look at someone who has a town named after them, there are multiple cousin marriages in that family. But yeah, well, what I was saying was that there is immediately, well, I mean, during the election, during the rise of Trump during the general when Trump would catch up and then after he won there was this obsession with finding someone who had the divining rod for poor white people Mm -hmm. because 
media people think that they understand poor black people because they, you know, they, they listen to Illmatic or something and they're like, oh, I understand that. They're good. I saw but, The Wire. Yeah, I saw The I Wire. I get it now. I watched Reading Rainbow. But, uh, <laughs> but they've never really known like a type of poor white person. If they run into even like a middle, lower middle class white person, they may write some sort of rambling, hysterical Facebook post about how they're going to kill them. But, but at, at its core, this obsession is classism because you see this great ground this great shift of conservatism from sort of soft nationalism soft racism as you think it is soft imperialism to just the very hard right version of those things and it's very gauche and you maybe saw a few pictures of a guy who you think may be a hillbilly you don't know because you've never actually seen one and you go that's the groundswell of trump support <laughs> ignoring the data that you worship and the information yeah. that you love you live your life as this data wonk but you don't look at the actual data which tells you these, these oh yeah there's no groundswell yeah these are the same people who've always voted for republicans they're, yeah you're, totally. you know what they're the shitty parents of whatever fucking new york or dc media worm who is working for the ezra's and the mats and the etc yeah. but <laughs> they you know there's a resistance look at at this you know a pure classism because well the democratic party's model for the last 30 years was trying to win these fucking people <laughs> and it didn't work so they get to kill two birds with one stone they get to a not understand that there is a, just a deeply reactionary element to the bourgeois and two they get to sort of obscure the biggest failures of the democratic party pretending like they <laughs> offered them something really great by just saying uh, well, the the part of the hillbilly brain is fucked up, and they they're too racist to vote for Hillary Clinton, who's a WOC. Is the people who look at like fucking Duck Dynasty or the Bundy Ranch and don't see the fact that these people are, for lack of a better word, like shucking and jiving hillbilly shit when they're actual fucking millionaires? Like when you're driving the eighty thousand yeah. dollar pickup truck. Yeah. yeah. You know? Have you been to the hauler recently? Like even Jim Goad, who's a piece of shit and a moron, bemoans this. But uh, they're pretty globalist these days. They love rap music. <laughs> they're wearing, okay, they're wearing FUBU from the 90s, but like, it's there. They're like, J-Rock. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They are. Yeah. <laughs> Brendan, edit in some J-Rock. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so JD's going back, to, going back to his hometown in Columbus, Ohio. And like, you know, just thinking about that, I had the idea, just JD Vance just going, here is to venture capitalism. The cause of and solution to <laughs> all of the white working class wait, problems. Wait, wait. And, then, and then he says, yeehaw, and shoots <laughs> like, into the air no. like, the, like the oil Texas guy, because that's what he thinks hillbillies are like at this point. He's been so far right. Well, the thing is, like, okay, so he's going to bring, so obviously he's one of these dipshits who thinks, well, we're going to. We're going to solve this problem by bringing opportunities to these people, exactly. which is the same thing liberals say about the inner mm -hmm. cities. Mm -hmm. uh, but of course, by very definition, even if you were to do that, and even if those opportunities were offered, a small percentage of people in those areas would be able to take advantage of them for a, a exactly. bunch of reasons. Yeah. Uh, and and the, the, but then the the question remains: Well, what about everybody else? Well, JD Vance. I figured out who he is. He is not. Uh, he's not. You know, Homer Simpson, cause and solution to. He's Raylan Givens. 
<laughs> he came back from a coastal city because you know with Raylan Givens it was a it was a shooting with him like he accidentally invested in like a child porn startup I don't know uh, you can edit that out but if you want if you don't want to accuse him of investing in child pornography but they were like we're reassigning you to where you came from the holler and he goes back down and there's a Boyd Crowder there who's like. I like being ignorant. <laughs> you ain't you ain't going to change me, JD. And they sort of he's. I see you become mighty loquacious since your time at Yale Law School. Now, advanced, advanced. Now listen to me, Boyd. By the time I was eighteen, I'd mastered spreadsheets, <laughs> and it's justified. But it's about justified. Uh, using eminent domain to take all of their property and turn it into an uber self-driving car station <laughs> and uh, call and using the remnants from their holler to make a super coffin for peter Thiel to live in. <laughs> and the end of the series is jd vance and boyd crowder they're talking to each other through the glass not because boyd is in prison but because that's where jd vance has decided poor people should live <laughs> In sort of like just fixing problems, yeah, just yeah. sort of glass cubes. Yeah. JD Vance, he's like got his hand across it. He's in a mech suit that rich people now wear at the end of the Justified JD Vance series, and they've sort of they they've gone through a lot. Him and Boyd Crowder, and they both say at the same time, "We said slurs together." <laughs> <laughs> I just think I, I hate the guys. I hate all of these fucking any of these things that want to uh, make. To, to like do crocodile tears about these these lost communities and then try to make half-hearted attempts to contextualize their pain, but at the end of the day say, hey, what's going to happen to them is going to happen to them because we've enshrined capital as the protagonist of civilization and actual human lives are just grist in this blood mill to get <laughs> spit out and turned into whatever capital decides to do to them. Well, can, can I, I, can that's I, what you think. If you think the capital is the protagonist of history, then you should not give a shit about any of these people. And you should say, if you're too fucking stupid... To make it work, then you get destroyed. As Alan Greenspan said about uh, Atlas Shrugged, you know, those who lack purpose uh, or dignity perish as they should. And I have way more respect for that than people who want to pretend that they give a mm -hmm. shit about humans when they've decided to put all of their efforts behind uh, exacerbating economic trends that do nothing but destroy them. Is there a sense that he thinks of, because I find this incredibly common with liberals, it, I assume it might be similar with conservatives, but they think of like rural poverty and urban poverty as being two entirely different species, despite the fact that there's like joblessness, mass depression, alternative economies that have to form in this vacuum, horrible... Horrible environmental disasters. Everyone dumps their garbage in Appalachia, too. People don't realize, like, there's terrible, horrible... Like, there's flints all over the country. Oh, yeah. Uh, like, does does he think that, like... That, that, they're, that they're different beasts or something? You know, I, I can't really tell. He doesn't really dive into that. He writes mainly out of his own experiences. And the way he talks about... I think it's worth underscoring. The way he talks about possible solutions to this, which we've been circling around. Uh, obviously, if you were to reverse engineer, if you were to start and say, how could I write a book to kind of talk about the white working class, but leave no 
structure um, changed at all. Just leave everything untouched. It would be this book. Uh, because obviously he thinks venture capital is part of the solution. But the only real policies he talks about in the book are, he'll say things like, well, you know, the government should help if they can. But really, you know, it's always the but really comes in. But he does talk about um, reforming payday loan lenders to make it easier, actually, <laughs> to, get, to, get, to get loans. Uh, and he gives this awesome. example of like, Good. you know, getting a, a page, like, what if you want to take some girl I out on a it, date? I and, called it. Yeah. Micro loans come to Appalachia. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and I really, I do want to underscore this on this show, especially for you, Felix. Uh, he does talk about family court and custody oh, yeah. law. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. And he doesn't make, he actually has a decent point that like in these confused family situations, you could just sticking them with the dad who's like three states away might not be the best thing for the kids. But like when you're really talking no, about him. like, yeah, <laughs> you know, like really actually addressing these problems, a mix of payday loan reform, uh, family court shit and uh, venture capital just is not going to do it. Yeah. What if, what if you could put your own bones on layaway <laughs> and someone could rant your femur or something? These are the ways that we can get over the systemic, non-cultural, cultural poverty uh, of Appalachia. Well, like I said, I, I, I think, that, you know, this is why JD, is, he's doing TED Talks. Mm-hmm. Matthew, you think he's gonna, definitely going to run for office at some point, right? Uh, I think that was part of what was behind the move back to Ohio. Um, oh right, and whether he runs in Ohio or Kentucky, I'm not sure. But both um, Mitch McConnell and uh, but he's in Columbus. Yeah, yeah, they're not no, I, like a Senate, right? I don't know, but okay. like a bunch of politicians from Ohio, Rand Paul and um, maybe Kasich or McConnell. Do so you think he would like they, shoot high? I don't know. I, I really well, don't. He's know. He's got this huge media, pro, you know, platform yeah. now, and like everybody's kissing his ass. Yeah, and he can get on like any mm-hmm. TV show and be praised as this kind of like the guy with the solutions or the every guy with fucking the, Ivy yeah. League yeah, New exactly. Yorker yeah. writer yeah. Yeah. like I'm oh what are those drums saying <laughs> yeah. well to those drums I just actually want to read the end of the New Yorker piece because it's <laughs> hell, a hell of a denouement I don't know what the answer is <laughs> precisely but I know it starts when we this is this is Vance writing here I don't know what the answer is precisely, but I know it starts when we stop blaming Obama or Bush or faceless companies and ask ourselves what we can do to make things better. Yeah, exactly. Faceless it's companies. <laughs> by the way, no, by we, the way, I would say this too. If someone were to write this book and talk about, say, urban black poverty or uh, border town, uh, you know, uh, Mexican Americans. The New Yorker would be way, way, way gentler with uh, endorsing any of the bullshit that someone would say about that. Yeah, absolutely. There's just like no fucking way you could get away with with being like, well, you know, maybe it is a culture of poverty. Not in the fucking New Yorker. You'd have to tap dance your way around it. You have to use all kinds of weird bullshit liberal language to like pretend like you're not being racist. And guess what? That speaks to exactly his point about how these people do condescend. To, to what? They're fucking East Coast liberal condescending assholes. Just the, okay. So this is this is this is the path that, that JD took uh, out of poverty to the Marines and eventually to to Mithril Capital and then, <laughs> so and, then and then back yeah. to Columbus to bring opportunity to the to, to, back to, to Mordor, if you will. <laughs> yeah. But I, I alluded to at the beginning, like Matthew, I want to talk to you ab- about 
your your piece, you know, you this essay that you wrote for your Descent magazine about sort of leaving your conservative upbringing and beliefs mm-hmm. early in life. Your you know your background is not too different from JD's. Uh, you know, you had a. Uh, uh, your father worked in a factory in central Pennsylvania. Right. Mm-hmm. The essay opens with a very moving part where he like takes you by the factory every time you drove past it and said, don't ever go there. I don't ever want right. to go back to that. Like, yeah. That's how hard, that's how bad it was. And like, you know, also a uh, similarly conservative religious background. Mm-hmm. And I was just wondering like, what, what, le- what led you to like a different, a different path or like uh, to look at the economic rather than the cultural? Yeah, that's, it's an interesting question. Uh, it took a long time. I mean, it didn't happen overnight. Um, I actually I wrote this essay because uh, Michael Kazin uh, was one of my teachers in grad school, the editor of Descent, and uh, I met him when I was twenty-two or twenty-three, I guess. And he was teaching this graduate seminar on American conservatism, and this is like at the height of the Bush years, right, when the, the left and liberals are really on the defensive. And he said he was teaching this to. Uh, figure out how to win, you know, why, why the left was losing. And he said, I, I'm teaching this class, but I, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm a card-carrying member of the American left. And we went around the seminar table, and he got to me, and I said, I'm Matt Sitman, and I'm a card-carrying member of the American right. You know? <laughs> and you know, like, here it is, years later, he sees me on Twitter like talking up Bernie, and he just sends me an email and says, you should write about what happened. And so that's kind of how the essay came about. Um, but really, I think it was... You know, when I lived in central Pennsylvania, uh, class was not something I was conscious of, like literally, because uh, everyone around me was basically the same. There was no old money, certainly, and the new money that existed, like the rich guy in town would own the uh, uh, garbage pickup service or like had a small business that, that, that did well, right? And those were like the rich people I knew or not really that rich, but rich by central Pennsylvania standards. And it was moving away, living in D.C. Um, I lived in Charlottesville, Virginia for a couple of years. I, I taught at UVA for a while. And then I moved to Manhattan uh, to, to do the work I do now. And it was really, I think, the juxtaposition of those different experiences I had. Uh, and it just, things clicked eventually. Um, and, and, and there was a lot of reading involved. Uh, I feel like there's a lot of the economic history of the last... 40 or 50 years that I'm just shocked more people don't know. And that even someone like J.D. Vance can write this book and just have no, no idea of the changes that have happened systematically over the last few decades. If I could just read uh, um, <clears throat> briefly from, sure. from your piece in Descent, you write, leaving conservatism behind was then like leaving behind my youthful fundamentalism. Both conservatism and fundamentalism assume freedom to be the foundation of our lives, not something limited by environment or resources. Both assume that virtue can conquer the brute force of circumstances, and both condemn us to a world where grace must be earned rather than freely given. A view of life that comforts and flatters the successful but can only prove cruel to everyone else. A class-based politics acknowledges that we are bound in ways we do not choose, that we are constrained in ways that the exertion of our wills may never overcome. I thought that was a really well-written and really well-said, and I Thank think you. it gets to this idea about why this idea of like, like empathy is always a dead end for when de- like dealing right. with poverty or even mm-hmm. cultures that you may find alien or objectionable in either ways. Yeah. And the point is that it shouldn't matter. I shouldn't have to, Ember, li- as you said, I shouldn't have to like people to be in solidarity with them. Yeah. Right. I would I'm s- not here to make friends. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I would say sort of conceptually, uh, the, the breakthrough for me really was my understanding of human agency. Just as I said, that, that we're bound in ways we don't 
choose. And I really don't think a lot of people who find themselves in tough circumstances in life like actively set out to sabotage their lives, right? And if you've, you know, I'm not ashamed to admit that I've struggled with depression and things like that. And you just, if you have enough experiences as you go through life uh, that point to your own limitations, uh, to me, that was my own experiences in that regard really changed the way I view politics and and other people. And And you mentioned empathy, but really, it's made me more compassionate to look at people and not have to be like, well, I'm going to overlook these shitty, horrible things they're doing to try to help them. It's because I don't, I just don't view them in those categories anymore. Like you're not constantly you know, evaluating right, exactly. people and trying to do some sort of means testing for their exactly. You know, morality. Ex- exactly. Every bastard deserves better. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, I'm not afraid to admit, you know, throughout my life, I've always been strong enough to never struggle with depression. (laughs) And I hope that wasn't like, I'm just like, I've always been brave enough to be happy all the time. And you know, like it's not bad. It's not bad to say that in in my life. You know, it's not pretty open about my life, about my struggles. You know, (laughs) my life now it's easy, but I've had problems before. Like, yeah, you know, I've had years where it's like I had too much sex. <laughs> years where, you know, like I was too smart in school. Heavy is the head that wears the yeah, crown. Exactly. Like sometimes I have to answer too many DMs from women. <laughs> well, but yeah. they, I mean, they have to believe in meritocracy. They have to believe either that people are rewarded for their personal virtues, either talents or not being racist by virtue of being the race that you're racist against, I guess. So that means you hit literally can't be racist. So that makes you worthy because if you think about it as everyone deserves a decent amount, uh, you know, a decent shot at life and a, a decent standard of living, regardless of ability or intelligence or even, you know, enlightenment, then, Oh shit, we can't operate the economy as this, grasping nightmare of of capitalism that accumulates and exploits and destroys uh that's the inherent implication of treating everybody as someone who deserves to be able to live decently so you have to have means testing in order to justify the vast swaths of people who are going to be ill served by capitalism i think that's a good place to wrap it up Thank uh, you for reading this book because I did not yeah. want to read it because I knew it would make me very mad. It, it Thank would. you so it much, would. Matt. <laughs> you're welcome. You're welcome. J.D. Vince, you're what I like to call a hillbilly wannabe. <laughs> type of motherfuckers <laughs> like you come back around the holler. so what we call a reversal. J.D. Vance, J.D. Vance, <laughs> you think you're better than me? J.D. JD Vance... I heard a lot of motherfucking talking from people like you, but one thing I ain't ever see as an operator was a motherfucking payday microloan store. <laughs> <laughs> Matthew Sipman, uh, thanks so much for joining us. Where Where, where is the review of uh, Hillbilly LG going to be? It'll be coming out in Commonweal pretty soon. In the next week or two, it should be hey. up on the site. Peep Commonweal, yeah. I can't wait to read it. Thanks so much for joining us. Oh, yeah. thanks, thanks for having me. The book. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Cheers, everybody. Bye. 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 Some folk will never read a scud, but then again, some folk will like Cletus, the slack-jawed yokel. Hey, what's going on on this side? Hey, Brandine, you might could wear these to your job interview. And scuff up the topless dancing runway? 
Nah, you best bring them back where from you got them. Okay. Back you go. Two weights for a woman or less discriminating tastes. Well, Spoke will never lose a toe and then again some vocal like Cletus the slack-jawed yokel. Hey, you know what? I could call my ma while I'm up here. Hey, ma! Get off the dang roof!